0: Folks, welcome to this episode of the Jackson Lucas Impact Real Estate Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Chris Papa, and we have another host, as always, Lisa Flicker. Hello, Lisa.
1: Hi, Chris. How are you today?
0: I am great. How are you in New Orleans today?
1: I am wonderful. I'm looking forward to the end of the day to get out to Jazz Fest and listen to some great music.
0: I've never been to New Orleans. Is it it nice?
1: So we flew in late last night. I did walk around. The weather was beautiful. I'll, I'll give you the full report at the end of the weekend.
0: All right. I can't wait. Uh, well, today we have someone that you met. I've, I've known about this person for a long time, but I've never met him. But you met him. Uh, Stephen Denholtz. Stephen is the CEO of Denholtz Properties based out of Red Bank, New Jersey. Where, where did you meet Stephen, Lisa? You
1: no, know, we were introduced through a mutual friend. And, um, I just, we met for breakfast and I, we clinked. I really like him. I think he's a good, solid human who has the humility and the success. And that's my favorite combination.
0: Yeah. He's, uh, he founded the firm in 1983, the year you were born Lisa. And, um, <laughs> he still very much involved. He still has the same work boots uh, he has the day he showed up for his first day at work so it's, it's a great guy really interesting story he's seen the ups and downs in real estate and it's it's very it's very relevant to where we are today
1: well there is a lot to history repeating itself so yeah I agree
0: well cool well thank you all who are subscribing and listening please share with your friends please shoot us some questions if you have any and please have a great weekend
1: Hello, folks. Welcome to the Jackson Lucas Impact Real Estate Podcast. I'm your co-host, Lisa Flicker, joined by my co-host, Chris Papa. And our phenomenal guest today is Steve Denholtz of Denholtz Properties. And we are very excited to have you on. And I think it's going to be gold for our listeners. So welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I love what you what you do for your audience, and uh, you should keep on doing it. Hopefully, I can add something.
0: How you doing, Stephen? Good to see you. You
2: too, Chris. You too.
0: Back back in, uh, we both have uh, seven three two area codes. I got my I got my seven three two area code when I went to Rutgers. So,
2: you know when I when I moved into New York, I uh, I got my first cell phone. It had nine one seven. I was so happy to have a New York number, so I didn't have to be uh, designated. <laughs> From New Jersey. So I kept it. <laughs> I've always kept
0: it. Well, I have, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, my, I grew up in nine Oh eight to one and then I went to Rutgers and I got, I got seven, three, two, everyone associates me with seven, three, two, but I never actually, you know, I don't associate yeah. myself with seven.
2: Uh, <laughs> yes,
1: I feel like that nine one seven was like a valuable asset at one point. It, now, it, I can...
2: it, it really was. And New Jersey's so underrated. It's such a spectacular state in so many great ways. Um, but yeah. it does have a lot of great industrial properties, so uh, it gets tagged with uh, uh, industrial only. So.
0: Well, everybody flies into Newark who doesn't know New Jersey, and they see Newark, and you fly in over all that stuff, and you're yeah. like, "Wow, all right, yeah. this state's yeah. like a
2: a mess." My wife, my wife, when we drive up the Turnpike, thinks it looks phantasmagoric uh, <laughs> at night when you see the the the, the smoke and the lights. Yeah. And the light. yeah. yeah. Which is very cool. So, that's an optimistic way of looking at the uh, pollution. Um, <laughs> Speaking of pollution, yeah. no, I'm kidding. So, you, you grew up in, in New Jersey? I did. I grew up in North, North Livingston and yep. uh, I spent a few years in uh, New York City, a few years in California, but by and large, uh, Jersey uh, born and bred and uh, there now.
1: And has real estate always been a passion of yours? Well,
2: I grew up in a real estate family, uh, so I heard it around the uh, dinner table. I uh, went to law school, practiced for a few years, and uh, said, that's enough. Uh, this law stuff is, uh, doesn't suit my brain. And uh, my father was uh, not sure what he wanted to do next. And um, that was at the beginning of the office building, boom. Uh, which I saw through the first cycle and now I'm seeing through the, uh, the second disastrous, uh, office cycle in my life.
0: Well, take, take us through the first, uh, cycle. How did, what did that look like?
2: In the first cycle, it was fascinating. No one had built speculative office buildings. Uh, really, uh, corporate, uh, corporations built their own buildings, but, uh, people were still working. Was that right? Their yeah. Uh, There were very few speculative office buildings by the early 80s. There were some from the 70s. I'm not saying there were zero. But in the early 80s, uh, every town wanted uh, office buildings because, A, they were generally located on the outskirts of town. Mm. Uh, B, they had tremendous rateables, C, they had no school impact. Uh, And D, they really provided no services other than a fire inspection uh, once or twice a year. And uh, they added to the garbage collections a little bit. So uh, it was very easy to get uh, permits and approvals. The value per square foot was very high. Uh, the demand seemed to be endless. And uh, so everybody uh, overbuilt the uh, savings and loan companies uh, provided, you know, just tremendous amounts of liquidity to the real estate developers all across the country. And it all ended in a very, very ugly manner in the uh, late 80s when most of the uh, savings banks and almost every bank that we borrowed from went out of business, not because of us, uh, but uh, they went out of business because they went broke. And Mm -hmm. the RTC and the FDIC came in and overtook those banks and sold off all those loans. Uh, Office buildings continued to be popular, um, became very big in the uh, 24-hour cities, Tremendous numbers of buildings built in all the uh, downtowns, and now those downtowns after the pandemic uh, have really struggled, and office continues uh, to be a real struggle, other than in mm. a couple uh, interesting little uh, areas. We still think there's a good play for office in the uh, kind of small downtowns. People who uh, have their businesses in their homes and, you know, want to be in a cool modern, uh, right. you know, 100,000 foot building. So. Uh, there's still a play but the downtown office buildings are uh, are tough very very tough
0: did you start out uh, your first
2: deals doing office my first deal was an office building which we sold about 10 years ago um it's now being resold for about 50% less than uh, wow we yeah. sold it for but after that uh, we did uh spec development of uh multi-tenant industrial properties in New Jersey um, we then followed that up. We moved. We started uh, developing in Florida, uh, some retail in Florida, and we've tried to, you know, kind of follow the trends. Over the last, you know, ten years, we've pretty much exited uh, retail and office, but we've kept uh, we've kept the industrial. We've kept the multi we had, and we've uh, greatly expanded the por- uh, multifamily portfolio, both in uh, New Jersey and in the Carolinas.
0: Can you take us? or Like, what could? I know Denhall's properties, but how, how? How? Can you tell us more about about the firm? How many people work there approximately? How many assets?
2: I won't tell you about the days when we were three people and I was deep in the we mud. We want to hear that too. But like, uh, I, start, I started in the mud. The first day I showed up from work, uh, you know, I was working with my father. We had a seventy-year-old super. So I'm, I'm getting there myself. And he looked at me and he goes. Well, at least you came in work boots, normally the boss's the son's, you know, so I, uh, <laughs> I, I had all that, but, uh, uh, he built, he built the office building. I did all the buying and all the numbers work and, um, and it was fun today. We're about a hundred people. Uh, we're based in red bank. We have, uh, maybe 50 or 60 assets, uh, you know, five, 6 million square feet of space focused on the development of multifamily buildings in New Jersey and in the Southeast and in the acquisition and uh, ground up development of multi tenant industrial properties in the same markets. Um, You know, fully built out organization, I don't do a lot of the stuff I used to do, um, which I miss most of it, uh, because I like being in the mud and Mm. details. Uh, But I'm still very involved in the design, uh, concept planning, and the strategic direction of what we do.
1: And do you have this? Do you still have a pair of work boots that you wear?
2: I start? have the same pair of work boots
1: <laughs>
2: Timberline, yeah, Timber, Timberlake or Timberline? Which were they? The yellow, uh, Timberland, oh,
1: Timberland. Timber, Timberland,
2: Timberland. I still got the same pair. Uh, I got the, you
1: covered on the fashion end, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, so take yeah. us through. So you three people, your father was doing this. It sounds like um, father was there, and- really
2: between things. And we started up to do this one building. Uh, I was tired of, uh, uh, the law, I'm tired of worrying about everybody else who wasn't worried about me. I figured if I'm going to worry, let me worry about myself. Uh, and, uh, that selfish attitude, I guess kind of helped. Um, and so we, uh, you know, so and and over these 40 years, really, uh, that uh, I've been involved and really goes back set almost uh, 75, 70 years, if you include my father's time, uh, primarily as a single family home builder, mm-hmm. uh, 40 years have been, you know, much a growth period with some uh, difficult down periods uh, in between, but um, we've got the company, you know, we have a tremendous culture here and a really wonderful group of people uh who do just uh, amazing things that i could have never dreamed of when i started
0: my my grandfather was a single family home builder and then uh, my uncle was like why does he keep selling all the assets and so you know what i mean like so he, he decided to build apartment buildings mainly and hold on to them did you see that too is that was or was that kind of yeah, just accident that
2: I wanted to and build for investment? i had seen I'd spent my whole life watching the ups and downs of uh, single family home building. And even as a young man, I saw uh, It's 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 just tough. And today, you know, the capitalization that's required to be a home builder uh, is, is spectacular, even for a single job. Although the home builders have figured out a better way. They don't own their land anymore until they're ready to build. Uh, and then they've take their land down one lot at a time. they've uh, huh. they've taken that uh, land and the heavy carry costs associated with land off their balance sheet. And uh, they've transferred that risk and upside to you know private guys who want to be in the land development business, but not the home building business.
1: I'm sure that was an expensive lesson for them to learn. but,
2: well, Kudos to them for learning it, it basically broke Hovnanian, broke most of the home builders at one time or the other. But now you know you have Lenar, Toll, uh, Horton, uh, uh, Ryan. I mean, these companies are incredible uh, machines—just incredible machines.
0: Take what were where was that first office building that you sold recently in uh, Union County, New Jersey? Nice, Union County, New Jersey. Do you remember? Were you scared to buy it? Was it like a lot of trepidation? We built it. We built, oh, we built it.
2: It. it. Okay. I, I, I was a kid. I figured, uh, you know, of course, it's going to work out. Uh, <laughs> right. You
1: didn't know any better. It's of course, going to
2: work out. What do you mean? We're doing it right. Um, it was a great learning experience. I really, I didn't even know what a pipe was. Uh, you know, we need different sized pipes. Why do you need different sized pipes? Well, we have electric pipes. So we have conduit for electric, and we have storm sewer. We got the whole thing. So. Uh, Anybody who wants to be in the real estate business should definitely uh, get involved with a, a, one development job at one point. You see it and start to finish. It's amazing what you can learn. Amazing.
0: What are some of the biggest lessons you have learned over your career?
2: Well, the, lear- the lessons I learned are all uh, life lessons more than they're real estate lessons, but they're transferable to real estate or transferable from real estate to life. Uh I always start off with, with lessons with uh, the RTC. When the RTC came around, we were, uh, my father and I were on a couple hundred million dollars of personal guarantees. And um, all of our banks were failing and all of our projects were struggling. And, uh, and I couldn't sleep. Um, and one day I woke up and for some reason I came to work and I said, you know what? We're gonna figure out what's gonna be next. Once I started looking forward and realizing that the adversity uh, was really an opportunity. uh, And I've carried that with me all my life. Uh, Whenever I get down, uh, it's because, um, you know, I'm worried about things that I don't need to worry about. I'm not thinking about the answers that I do need to uh, be thinking about. You know, the story that I like when people tell me, it says, you know, if you have a uh, hundred million dollars, but you're losing a million dollars uh, a year, you feel terrible. <laughs> but if you have a thousand dollars, but it, the next week you have $1,200, you feel great because it's all the direction that you're moving. Uh, so the most important thing is when you're sliding down to find a way to turn yourself to be moving up. Mm-hmm.
1: I love that. And I also feel like when I talk to people and they're on their career paths, they, it sometimes you, it doesn't, it's not linear, right? It's not that you're going to keep moving up every day and you're going to feel that progress. So I love, you know, what you said, adversity is an opportunity being able to look at it. I tell people, you know, reframe it's not, I have to do this, but I get to do it. And I feel like that's, that's, beautiful. You know, that's I, beautiful. I love what you're saying. You
2: mean, just chills. Just, I love that.
1: I love
0: <laughs> then you like currently with the office market turning, is that, did you focus, is that when you started focusing more on industrial and multi? No, no. We
2: realized, uh, you know, one of the problems with office buildings when I started, a tenant allowance was $20 a square foot and you could build out their whole space. Now we're just building out a space for UBS, $250 a square foot. And I'm telling you, it's nice, but it's not, uh, it's not uh, gilded uh, all, all the way around. We, the problem with office building is the tenants leave. And uh, you the cost of turning over the space and the time involved from one tenant to the next is just it's it just destroys the uh, project. Uh, You know, in industrial and multifamily, you're below the line costs. In other words, not subtracted from your NOI or minimal. Mm-hmm. But in office buildings, you're below the line costs, which is your capitalized costs of putting in tenants and paying commissions to uh, leasing brokers are extraordinary. They're an immense part of your business. So um, to compare an NOI of an office building to an industrial building is a, is a foolish task. Right. Uh, one NOI is worth something. The other may or may not be worth anything. So no. So we... Uh, We've been uh, on this, you know, we've always had multi-tenant industrial the entire time I'm in the business. uh, I love the product. Uh, When I say multi-tenant, we like to have buildings with lots of tenants. Uh, We are not uh, equipped to have a million square foot building with one tenant. And even if it's a great tenant, after 15 years, they leave and now you're sitting with the uh, problems of an empty million square foot building. We're not, we don't, we don't do that. We like uh, the diversity of risk that multiple tenancies provides, and in the multi-tenant uh, industrial space, in particular, the cost of turning over a tenant are very small. The amount of office space is small. You paint it, you carpet it, mm-hmm. you clean up the warehouse uh, portion, you make sure the loading docks are, are working properly, and uh, and the demand uh, and the number of tenants uh, who need that uh, space. You know We have such a vibrant, amazing uh, group of entrepreneurs in this country. Uh they're really, it's, it's spectacular what happens in this country from an entrepreneurial level. And uh, they all need the, the, that multi-tenant space. So it's, it's been a really great uh, product for us.
1: And I would imagine technology has tra- changed things tremendously from the day you started out on the job with those work boots to today. I mean, you know, just listening to the innovation that's taking place is fascinating to me.
2: When I started in real estate, I'd say the biggest change in technology for real estate is the transparency of the business. Nobody knew what other people had. They didn't know what their rent rolls were. They didn't know what they were charging. They didn't know what their cost structure was. They didn't understand what they were selling cap rates at. so the uh, the the uh, information having information was the most valuable commodity you could have. Today, Information is always, you know, probably the most valuable thing, but there's so much information. The markets are so much um, uh, more liquid as a result. So cap rates have come down. Um, Real estate's a much uh, more important asset in every portfolio manager's uh, portfolio today. It's... um, you know it's, it's just a much better asset class because everything's been standardized. The documentation's been standardized, the uh, the transparency, of course, all this technology has led to longer and longer documents because everybody can deal with 200 page documents when you step to mimeograph them. They were the three pages. Was the uh, I remember the first facts I got, you know, like <laughs> oh my god, I'm getting this. It was, whoosh, whoosh, wheel was turning, it was coming out in light ink. <laughs> Yeah.
1: Oh yeah. First facts was just it's like I can't I believe I I this, this came from across the country. It's spectacular! You,
0: like, you remember yeah. that, Lisa?
1: I do. I remember seeing the first facts and how excited. I remember in college somebody invited me downstairs to the computer lab that was like in the basement, and we we went down and they're like, "Watch this!" And we sent something to somebody at another university, and then we ran upstairs to our telephone, our landline, and we said, did you get it? Oh no, hang on, and that person ran downstairs to their computer, found, got it, printed it out, and we were just like, I, uh, it was like I, I mean, it was just-
2: And when FedEx came out, and I could get a, a you know, now they call them wet signatures, but uh, at that time they just called them originals because everything had to be signed, there was no DocuSign or Adobe Sign, anything. Yeah, to be able to get a package of information to somebody in one night. Like, yeah. then they used to say, well, we can't deliver one day service to everywhere, you know, because if it was like in Pensacola, it, they had <laughs> to ship it to Miami and then drive it up there.
1: <laughs> it's. I'm sure you've seen that change the operations at your buildings in a tremendous way. Oh, Even leasing, I would imagine like the technology behind that has got to be
2: in, 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 first of all, I, I look about it from the design, from the architect standpoint. We now can collaborate in real time in uh, in Lumion and Revit, and you can see the building in three D. They can fly you through the site. Uh, they can fly you around the corner, look at your competitor's building. Uh, it's in every in every aspect. Uh, technology just makes it it, it. it it's just great. The ability to communicate is uh, tremendous. Just tremendous.
0: The so real, yeah, I mean, real estate's become, you're saying, much more of a, a institutional asset class now. And you know, back in the day, it was kind of
2: just written on a napkin type of thing. Yeah, it, it really was. But although I still believe if you can't write it on a napkin, you shouldn't do the deal. Right. Uh, well, if you need good, more fancy uh, fooling around than a napkin lets you uh, take. You, you got problems. How have you
0: found? Um, I mean, you, you had three people, now you have 100 people. How have you found the, the folks recently? Like, are they are they smarter? Are they are they better real? Like, do they know more about real estate than when you started out? Like, who, who did you hire? Like, when you first started out? Like, uh, we were just
2: not just we were hiring administrative uh, support, uh, field people. Um, I don't, you know, look. I, I doubt people are smarter. Not smart. Smart is not the right word. But they are they, well, they, they kind of more prepared. More, there's more much more. First of all the students come out of college with proficiencies in Excel, uh, proficiencies in Argus modeling you know it uh, what, you, what you can get an undergraduate degree or one year of a graduate degree um, makes you useful uh, from day one you can actually uh, um, you know you, you can be productive the day you, the day you walk in.
1: It's interesting I find people at the intern level, coming out of universities, freshmen, sophomores, juniors, what they have to add, people tell us is far greater than what, like, you know, people out of MBA programs were once adding. So I think that, you know, they really, there really is like that element of like, you know, apprenticeship that goes on top of it. But the the baseline, I think they people do get that in school. So it's great. It's, it's, all these programs.
2: It is. And, you know, it used to be, uh, pretty tough to attract real talent to real estate. Everybody went, uh, into investment banking, uh, now into tech, but, um, because real estate has gotten so much more sophisticated and takes so much more brain power, uh, and organizational skills than it used to, it used to be kind of, you could back a napkin out of a truck, you know, kind of thing. It's, uh, it's not that way, not that way.
0: If there's a young, you know, a young person came to you and said, Hey, how do I become the next Steven Denholtz or like, or what advice would you give me? Like, what, what advice would you give
2: somebody trying to get in real estate? People who know me would probably say, don't tell them how to become you. That's not not what this world needs. Um, But, uh, look, I, I loved, uh, and I as much time talking to people new in the business. I possibly can. I enjoy it. Uh, it's an exciting business. You can find a spot in the business for whatever uh, type of personality you have. If you're salesy, uh, you can be in brokerage. If you're uh, strategic, you can uh, be on the consulting side. If you're transactional, uh, you can, you know, you can be in the business, uh, you know, in, in the ownership side. You can be, uh, you know, there, there's just so, there's so many spots. I tell people, you know, people come through uh, into the business different ways. What I generally try to tell people in your twenties, you know, you should spend three, four, five, six years trying to figure out what you like. Um, don't be afraid to to move, uh, and if you have a real entrepreneurial bent, it's time to take a shot. Find somebody who's going out on their own always find a great mentor. That's what I tell you. If you can uh, hang hang on to that guy who strikes you in your gut as this is the guy who knows what he's doing, and then just hang around him and just keep asking him every day, can I do this for you? Can I do that for (laughs) you? Don't try to anticipate. Don't ask him, can I do something for you? Say, oh, I know you're working on, on this. Can I check the comps for you? Can I you know, and make yourself indispensable to that guy who's indispensable to his company. That's great advice.
1: That is great advice. And I think for, you know, whenever we're talking to young people and they say, what can we do to be successful in our first job? I think that advice of just like making yourself indispensable, come in early, be in the office, leave late. That's right.
2: You know, when a guy needs help. a piece of a paper run over to someplace, say, I got time, let me, let me do that for you. And just always be there, not asking what can I do, but anticipating what, thinking about what that person's doing, what does he need? Try to think through his his head. You know, getting a piece of paper across town sometimes is the most annoying thing for someone. He doesn't know how to do it. He's going you know, to call a service to do that, or, you know, I'm going to pick up, a, my printer's not working. Can I, you know, all, all this stuff that doesn't seem uh, critical, you can make yourself uh, part of that, part of that team. and. Yeah.
1: Right. The little things mean everything. Yes.
2: Yes. My, uh, I had a colleague. It
0: was great. She worked on my team. She would always say, my job is to make your life easier.
2: That is the
0: right attitude.
2: That, that is the right attitude. And I loved
0: her for it, you know, um, obviously was... who wouldn't love anyone who wants to make your life easier? <laughs> right,
2: right. <laughs> I mean, in life, that's what I, you know, you want to try to be of value to others in every way you can, in every aspect of your life. So, uh, it doesn't change just because it's a job. It's not about you. It's about uh, what everybody organizationally is trying to accomplish.
1: And by the way, people who, you know, when I tell ta- when I talk to people who are younger in their careers and talk about that, one of the things that I say is like the leaders are the most service oriented, right? Like we serve all of the people in our company. And if you think you're getting to the top and at the top means like it's just me, 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 no. Guess what? If there's a pandemic, I'm not taking money and I'm giving it to no. you. So like getting that, that feeling of like, I am in service to the people around me. will serve someone. I, I see it in use and I know it's valuable. The higher then, I've
0: come up the totem poles, quote unquote, the more crow I got to eat.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, the longer, the sooner you can learn in life that, um, not making it about you, uh, is, you know, it took me a long time, much longer than uh, it's taken some others, but it's the most valuable, the most valued, because it changes your uh, attitude towards every single thing you do, and it just makes you a happier, better um, person. You will know, you'll, you'll like yourself more. Are you ready for the hot seat, Stephen? Yeah. I- oh!
0: hot seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. They do this through services which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs, HR services, and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofit startups, and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities, reduce turnover, and preserve their brands. They have also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program, so they outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple of days a week, and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe. It doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR function. Um, So please check them out at kkreset.com, K-K-R-E-S-E-T.com. So this is a hot seat. Do you have a book or podcast recommendation?
2: I listen to some of the standard ones. I listen to Joe Rogan. Uh, I read a lot of spiritual books. I uh, highly recommend Eckhart Tolle to anybody who has The Power of Now. now. Uh, And one of the great one of the great books of, uh, of our times. I listen, uh, my friend John Schultz now has a podcast, uh, on, um, uh, the myth of the overnight success. So I like to okay. uh, promote John's podcast. He does a He does a good job. I listen to Tim Ferriss. I started listening to, uh, Huberman. I read a lot. I read mostly, uh, I read history a lot and I read spiritually a lot and I've kind of lost my interest in fiction. And uh, the great fiction is too difficult for me. And the other fiction is too boring for me. So. <laughs> I like a lot of spiritual books too. Same
1: here. Same here. Um, so tell us, obviously you've done a tremendous amount of transacting in, through your career. Tell us about your most memorable deal.
2: My most memorable deal. How, do I have two minutes to tell the story? That that probably my, my most memorable deal is we built a shopping center across the street from an A&P shopping center. We had Wegmans coming to our shopping Ooh. center. We were one inch from signing the lease. We got a call from A&P that they were gonna delay our approvals for years. And we knew they had a, the ability to do that. And we said, what do you want? And they said, well, we'll take the Wegman space and we'll move across the street to you. So we signed the lease with them. And you would think that was the end of the story. But then what happened was uh, that um, the owner of where they were found out that they were leaving and all of their tenants had co-tenancy clauses, which would allow them to stop paying rent if the supermarket shut Uh down and they were in the middle of trying to sell the shopping center. So we got 30% off the shopping center price by buying their shopping center without an A&P in it. Then we convinced A&P to stay where they were. We told them we would put a restrictive covenant on our land so that they could never have a competing supermarket against them. And we had, uh, the perfect scenario. So uh, the, what happened was, to Wegmans <laughs> where Wegmans go? They're fine. Well, right. Bobby Wegman will never speak to me again. And it was one of the worst things that I ever did in business, uh, in a way. But yeah, uh, you know, I couldn't afford to wait three years uh, yeah. to get an approval. I called them a number of times. Said, They're actually a spectacular uh, company, and they did find a spot about seven miles south. Uh, My was, mother loves Wegmans. Yeah, yeah, easy <laughs> to love, easy to love. <laughs> and I'm sure it's part
1: that So tell us, obviously, we know because we're doing some work with you, but when you go out to hire people... Is there something in particular, a character trait or something that you're looking for? Do you have a go-to question that you ask on the interview? How does that process usually go?
2: So, first of all, the thing that I've learned about HR is that's your company stands and falls on its HR. You can forget about all the rest. Uh, is get me a group of talented people that are committed, uh, that have personality, want to work together as a team can accomplish anything. Without it, you might as well well not get started. And it took me a long time to realize how much talent was out there. Uh, My day-to-day is, uh, you know, the the things that we're looking for now, Lisa, together uh, are at the highest level. And uh, so I'm I'm deeply involved. I look for someone first. If they're not a cultural fit, I, I don't go any further than that. Um, I need someone who's going to be upbeat and not a black cloud and going to look for solutions. And, you know, eh, so that's the that's the uh, that's the key uh, element of of any hire. The rest uh, people can be talented in many different ways. Some are thoughtful, some are quick, some are uh, aggressive, some are, you know, uh, more concerned, you know, all of the different things that people can have can be of value. Uh, you don't want the same person, uh, all of the same personality types in an office. You just want a couple of common um, characteristics uh, and they all relate to sort of that integrity, mm-hmm. uh, team playing, standing up for their own responsibility, taking, taking responsibility for their own obligations and actions.
0: Yeah, it's, you think it's a basic trait, but it's not. It's very rare to find someone who takes
2: responsibility. Not blaming everybody uh, yeah. else. I, I, I always tell people, if you come in and tell me you got a problem that somebody else caused you, you know, don't even start with me that way. Tell me you've got a problem and here's what it is. And uh, what's, you know, let's let's get out of it. You know, the, first of all, I don't believe in looking in the rearview mirror very much. Uh, history is uh, just a, depends on who's recollecting the history as to what really happened. Uh, you know, you got you to keep looking forward. Kind of got to move forward.
0: Now, this is the impact real estate podcast. How do you, how do you, how does your real estate have impact on the world?
2: First of all, as an organization, uh, we're in a lot of communities and we really love getting entrenched in those communities and becoming involved in the uh, community culture, uh, in the, uh, charitable organizations that support. Uh, all the various constituencies. So that's a very, very impactful. Uh, we're at Red Bank. We're deeply in you know, got probably 15 people doing different things in Red Bank to picking up trash, to, uh, to lunch break, uh, so it was serving uh, lunches to the, to the poor, to, or, to the Count Basie Theater, and, and all of the activities it provides. So those, those uh, things are uh, critically important. We also try to make communities out of every one of our assets even if they're not um multi-family but if they're any kind of multi-tenants we like our tenants to meet each other we like to uh, uh be there for them we like to proactively uh help them grow i've you know we deal with a lot of small businesses we probably have uh, 500 to a thousand small businesses as tenants and uh we try to watching them grow sometimes it's spectacular it's, you know, I've seen companies grow from 5,000 square feet to a billion dollars uh, in a 10, 15 year period. So uh, it's impactful if you're trying to provide a, uh, uh, an ecologically, um, uh, environmentally uh, positive atmosphere, uh, clean buildings, clean air, uh, lots of activities. And, you know, that's what we're trying to do. Uh, no potholes uh, <laughs> in, your, uh, in your tenancy and no potholes in our parking lots. <laughs> love it.
1: I love it. You take all the things you learn on the Huberman Lab about how to help with longevity, put those into the building. I was
2: just listening to Huberman. You know, a guy in my office was telling me about Huberman. I go, you know, you're smarter than me. You're I don't listening. know who Huberman is. Andrew Huberman is a... Uh, Stanford uh, doctor and uh, I think a physicist as well. Oh, somebody was telling so, me about that. Was uh, it you, uh, Very impressive guy. Very impressive. Nice personality also.
1: I'm going to send his podcast to you, Chris. He's please, amazing. Please do. Except he ruined my life because he made this recommendation that people should be doing these cold plunges. Mm. So one day I come home and my husband bought this like giant cold plunge thing. And I'm like, oh, so now we're doing this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'll do it.
1: Um, sure <laughs>
0: Stephen, I've known about your firm for a long time. Uh, it's really great to actually see the learn about the person behind the firm. So really appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing your story with us.
2: That's uh, it. Look, it's such a terrific company. It's nice to be associated with you. I really appreciate I hope uh, there was some value to somebody there somewhere.